Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of life. That, Lord, we have redemption and forgiveness and hope in the person of Jesus Christ. And, Lord, we are amazed at your love and overwhelmed, Lord, that your commitment is to redeem us and to reconcile us to yourself. Lord, I pray that you would instill in each and every person's heart a sense of courage and confidence, not in themselves, but in all that you've done through the person of Jesus. And Lord, we commit this time to you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 16, we're going to be looking at the first six verses. It says, and Jesus is speaking, these things I've spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the father nor me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Jesus is about to leave his disciples. Even as he speaks these words, only a few hours are left in his life. He will proceed to the Mount of Olives and the Garden of Gethsemane. He will spend time in prayer. He will be arrested. He will be incarcerated. He will be tortured, crucified, killed, and he will rise from the dead. And the separation makes no sense at all to the disciples. They're going through a situation where Jesus has reminded them over and over again, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I'm leaving. And they're thinking in their heart, what will happen when Jesus leaves? What will they do when they no longer have the visible presence and the comforting words of Jesus? And Jesus tells his disciples that he knows about the temptation and the despair. He is preparing them for the difficult time and the predictable trials. Remember earlier in John chapter 15, Jesus has already said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. For many people, persecution is the fine print in this thing called friendship and relationship with God. Wait a minute. You didn't tell me that there would be persecution. It's not the fine print. It's bold print. It's put up front. The disciples will face bitter opposition and humiliation and persecution. But remember what the disciples are supposed to be. They are witnesses to Jesus. True friendship with Jesus and companionship with Jesus and commitment to Jesus and familiarity with the message of Jesus was supposed to provide them with the confidence and the ground of witness. Remember in chapter 15, verse 26, it says, but when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth 
who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me in verse 27. And you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. And the witness, of course, is to a watching world. You see, whether you like it or not, people are watching you. And your witness is real or compromised or consistent. Failure to live by the power of the Holy Spirit will be the means whereby some will turn away and some will walk away and some will fall away from Christ and fellowship with Christians. You know, we have a church directory. Some of you are in it. Some of you are not. But imagine we had a second directory. A directory filled with the names of all of the people who, for whatever reason, have decided to walk away. Who no longer enter into fellowship. They have turned away. They have walked away. They have fallen away. And imagine we are given an opportunity to ask them one question. And the question is, why did you leave? I suspect that there would be all kinds of answers. They would range from, I think you're a horrible Bible teacher. It could be, I just don't care. It didn't work out for me. Some honestly might say, I got tired of the criticism and I got tired of the persecution. I got tired of the ridicule and the isolation and the threats. I, I decided that this whole Christian thing isn't for me. Or imagine they say, I blame God for, and then just fill in the blank. My job loss, my husband walking out on me, my wife walking out on me, the inconsistency and rebellion of my own church children. Jesus warns his followers to expect and prepare for persecution in verses 1 through 6. Jesus wouldn't be with them in bodily presence. And when they were cast out of the synagogue and when they were murdered and when they would be surrounded by hostility, there is this very good question. What will you do and how will you handle it? The religious leaders believed that they were doing a God a favor by casting them out and killing them. And in this chapter, Jesus is going to describe how the Holy Spirit lives and works through the believer. As a matter of fact, we're going to discover that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin in verse 9, of righteousness in verse 10, of judgment in verse 11. The Holy Spirit will instruct the believer in verses 12 through 15, and then encourage the believer in verses 16 through 22, and then help the believer pray. Not just pray, but pray in such a way that your prayers are heard and answered and responded to. And in order to get to that point, Jesus prepares them. Look again in verse 1. It says, these things I have spoken to you, Jesus is saying, that you should not be made to stumble. The word translated stumble is very interesting in the original language. In, in the Greek language, it's the word scandalizo. Now, some of you can even hear a familiar word from that. It's our own English word, scandal. It's something that causes somebody to trip up, that causes somebody to be offended. As a matter of fact, on the cover of People magazine, you have the forlorn look of John, of John and Kate plus eight. 
who says, let the criticism stop. It's a scandal that a man and a woman could have twins and then, and then six more kids for a total of eight. How could their life possibly fall apart? And that's what this word means. It's to trip by use of an obstacle. It's also translated offend. It also is translated go astray. It can even be translated made to sin. But the literal meaning is to bait a trap. And Jesus is using the term to warn the disciples to be on guard because a trap has been set for you. There is a trap, and here is the purpose of the trap, Christian. Jesus is warning you that hardship and struggle and pain and isolation and persecution is, is going to cause some people to turn away, walk away. As a matter of fact, you can imagine that's exactly what's going to happen. Persecution can cause some believers to turn away from the Lord Jesus. Persecution can cause shock and disillusionment. The Emperor Trajan, who was the Emperor of Rome from about AD 98 to about 117, he, he received a letter from the governor of, of Bithynia, Pliny, who lived from about 61 to about 112 A.D., but he wrote a letter in about 110 A.D., and when Pliny examined people accused of being Christians, some admitted, quote, that they had been Christians, but they ceased to be many years ago, some as much as 20 years ago. When he wrote that, that means 110, 190. This would have been about the time that John was writing this gospel, and then he would later write the book of Revelation. The persecution has already set in. People have already experienced pain and problem and horror. And there were heroes and there were martyrs who stood up for their faith. But there were also those who didn't hold up to the pressure. There were those who didn't have sufficient inner conviction to resist the persecution. They did not endure the endurance and and they couldn't face the pain and they didn't stand up un, under the pressure and they collapsed. What pressure are you facing today? The pressure may not be from what you and I would call persecution. Or it could be mild forms of persecution. Your husband is ridiculing you. Your wife is ridiculing you. Your parents or your, your children or your teachers at school are, are ridiculing you. Some of you are facing the circumstance where because you really believe that the Bible is true and because you really believe that the promises of God are true, that it's caused people to turn their back on you in friendship and fellowship. I read, a, I came across a letter recently. This is what it said, quote, religious zealots can be quite frightening and unpleasant, can't they? It's not the simple fact of believing in God that makes a person a religious zealot, although don't tell that to the average atheist who feel that just the mention of the word God makes a person a religious extremist. It is really a lot more than just that. Zealots are a very scary form of extremism, in my view, because they go overboard. They are rigid. They are intense. They often are, and he writes, Pecksniffian. I had to look it up. It means a super spiritual hypocrite. 
And then he goes on, holier than thou hypocrites who have no right preaching to anybody in the first place. As my friend Marjorie once said, many of them are psalm singing sons of, and you fill in the blank, masquerading as holy men. I have absolutely no respect for religious zealots. Think about it. For some, you're a religious zealot if you simply believe that there may be a God. For some, you're a religious zealot if you believe that the Bible is true. For some, you're a religious zealot if you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and that He forgives sins and that He gives you an opportunity to go to heaven. (laughs) I came across something where it says, you might just be a religious zealot if... Now, most of the things on this you're going to agree with and you're going to laugh at. And then all of a sudden you're going to find yourself on the list... You might just be a religious zealot if, number one, you have a wife under the age of 16. Or you have more than one wife. You might be a religious zealot if you promote genocide. You might be a religious zealot if you feel children should be trained to kill non-believers. You might be a religious zealot if you will war to prove your God is the best God because he can't defend himself and needs puny humans to do his fighting for him. You might be a religious zealot if you believe Zenu is real. Now, I don't know what Zenu is, but it's just on the list. Or if you believe sinners should die and you can't wait to watch them burn in hell. If you've protested a military funeral. If your church is the only true church. If your church leader makes more than $50,000 a year. If your leader wears designer suits while asking you to give to God so he can buy more suits. You pay in advance to go to the next level. You give all your worldly goods to the church. You take a vow of celibacy. Your leader has a say in who you should marry instead of eHarmony.com. Your your leader is allowed to sleep with your wife. You're asked to disown everyone not of your own faith, and then you do it. You're waiting for the mothership. You send your children to hell house to make the devil more real. Your child is scared and fill in the blank of the devil. You send your kids to camps where they cry hysterically over committing imaginary sins. You let your church tell you who to vote for. Your church services are broadcast on television or radio. You refuse to get your child medical help because your church says it's a sin. You have participated in an exorcism. You burn books. You think Darwinism is pretend. You believe the earth is less than 10,000 years old. You think the earth is flat. For real. You'll follow your leader without question while in civilian clothing. What's interesting to me is the mindset that that list reveals. That the moment you come to the conclusion... That the life of Jesus and the stories and the miracles of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus might be real. Then you make your way onto the list. You need to understand something. The goal of persecution on the part of the enemy is to get the believer to question his or her faith. 
to question belief in the Lord Jesus, to question the Bible and the promises of God. The goal of persecution is to manipulate the believer so that they will abandon worship of God and then return to a false religion or a false belief system. The goal of persecution is to silence the believer's witness and then cause the believer to deny the Lord Jesus Christ. The goal of persecution is to get you to shut up. If you'll just keep your mouth shut, if you'll just keep your eyes closed, if you simply refuse to bring a testimony of love and hope and forgiveness to a watching world, the world will stand you. But the moment you disagree with them, the moment you cross them, the moment that you suggest that they might be wrong, expect criticism and questioning and ridicule. You can expect to be passed over at work. You can expect to be denied tenure at a college or university. You can even expect a husband or a wife to walk out on you. You can expect a boss to mock you. You can expect people to attack you and isolate you. And in some circumstances on the planet Earth, you can expect imprisonment and torture and execution because this worldview simply isn't welcome. And so Jesus sends a message to his disciples. Expect persecution. You know, when Tyndale was persecuted and his enemies were out for his life, because he sought to give the Bible to the people in the English language, he said calmly, I never expected anything else. That shocked me and surprised me. Here's why they wanted to kill Tyndale. Because he was willing to translate the Bible into languages that people could understand. And they weren't willing to let him live. That's why people resent you so much. Especially when you come with the Bible. Hey, are you some sort of Jesus freak? Are you some sort of religious anachronistic person? What are you doing carrying around that Bible? At least for many of us now, we can, we can hide our Bible electronically and put it in an iPod. And see, now the unbeliever thinks you're hip. Until you show them that you have the Bible loaded as an application. Do you understand what he's saying? Number one, expect... Persecution. Number two, expect persecution from religious people. Look at verse two. It says they will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. Some of you should underline that sentence. The time is coming for many of you. The time has not yet come. No one has ever laughed at you. No one has ever ridiculed you. No one has ever mocked you or insulted you. And you wonder how you've managed to go this long without insult. But the time is coming. And look what else Jesus says. He says they will put you out of the synagogue. You've got to understand something. For the Jew, the synagogue was the place where they would pray, where they would worship, where they would learn about God. And for the Jew, excommunication from the synagogue 
meant being cut off from your family and it meant being cut off from your friends. And under certain circumstances, it meant being cut off from your finances. Because if you were cast out of the, of the synagogue, guess what? People wouldn't talk with you, they wouldn't meet with you, and they certainly wouldn't buy things from you. And so, some rabbis told observant Jews that persecution... Well, some rabbis told observant Jews that their prayers weren't effective unless they were prayed in the synagogue. There's a modern application to that. There are churches that will say, you aren't a Christian unless you walk into the doors of the church, unless you pray and offer and give in a particular building at a particular time, then you don't have a real relationship with God. I'm here to tell you that friendship and fellowship with God can't simply take place in this building. If you don't know him and love him when you walk out the door, then you have every reason to seriously question your circumstances. Jesus is reminding the disciples that the persecution will be religious in nature and severe. They'll kill you. Not only will they kill you, but the persecutors will believe that they're doing God a favor. The word Jesus uses for he offers God's service. The word service is very important. It's the Greek word latreia. It's a normal word that was used to describe the service of a priest in the temple of God. It was the word that was almost invariably used when you were describing a religious service. Here is the idea. That people are actually working for God when they're working against you. Saul of Tarsus was confident when he was arresting and persecuting and imprisoning Christians. Think about it. He believed he was doing it for the glory of God. As a matter of fact, turn to Acts chapter 26 if you have your Bible. And look at verse 9. Paul, Luke is writing, but Paul is giving a speech as a matter of fact, Paul says, indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. I need to tell you something. Do you know how Paul compelled them to blaspheme? He would take them out and he would tie them to a post and he would beat them repeatedly until they were willing to say that Jesus of Nazareth is not the Christ. In fact, he is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Now look what it says. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them. Even to foreign cities. I wasn't content to hassle them, harass them, beat them, and punish them in my own city. I was willing to go anywhere, anytime, and confront them and hurt them. You see, some of you have that same testimony. There was a time in your life where 
because you lived apart from God and you lived apart from Christ, you felt it was your duty to ridicule and humiliate Christians. I know because I used to be that way. I wasn't content to just simply make fun of them. I wanted to isolate them and persecute them and humiliate them. Paul, the apostle, used to be Saul, the persecutor. But there would come a point where Saul, the persecutor, becomes Saul, Paul, the persecuted. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13, it says, Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. This particular person is shipwrecked twice. He's beaten three times with 40 stripes minus one. He is stoned and left for dead. Those who tortured people during the Spanish Inquisition were sure that they were rescuing souls from hell. In many countries, Islam stands violently opposed to Christianity. But make no mistake, the Muslim leaders who persecute the Christians believe that they are doing the work of God. John MacArthur writes, the folly of attempting to serve a false god by murdering God's people reveals the depths to which sinful darkness blankets the minds of the unconverted. It's true. There is a wickedness and an evil. There is a deeply entrenched mindset on the planet in which we live that Christians must not be allowed to say what they believe. You see, the persecutor wants you to stay silent. And the persecutor isn't content to simply silence you. The persecutor also wants to make it impossible for you to worship God. So the moment that you have to shut your mouth, the next moment they will close the doors of the church. And then they will close the doors of your home. And then they will make it illegal for you to associate with one another. Sometimes loneliness among men is the price of fellowship with God. And there may come a time when people won't let you meet with each other. Jesus wants the disciples to expect persecution. And then Jesus wants us to expect persecution from religious people. And Jesus has promised the Holy Spirit as helper and comforter. And the promise of the Holy Spirit doesn't simply constitute an exemption from the pain or the persecution. It's not like, oh, guess what? When the Holy Spirit comes, people won't ridicule you. They won't make fun of you. They won't mock you. They won't isolate you. No, part of the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to strengthen you in the face of adversity. The road to heaven is narrow and following Jesus will sometimes result in pain and hardship and torture and death. And now all of a sudden 
If for whatever reason you believe that persecution was the fine print, you need to understand something. Persecution is the bold print. On Friday, I saw a very interesting coin. It was from the time of the Papal States in 1849. It was a time when Italy reunites as a sovereign country. It was 1849. And I remember Garibaldi gave a now famous speech where he appeals for the recruits. The, there's, there's revolution all around him. And he says, and I quote, I offer neither pay nor quarters nor provisions. I offer hunger or thirst forced marches, battles, and death. Let him who loves his country in his heart and not with his lips only follow me. And hundreds did. And then thousands. But very few people are willing to make the same claims for Jesus. Remember, Jesus himself said, if you would come after me, take up your cross and follow me. You'll remember... Jesus said in, ch in chapter 15, verse 21, but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they didn't know him that sent me. And so he gives the reason for, for the persecution. Look again in verse 3. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? Those people who reject the Father reject the Son. For the person who says, I love God, but I hate Jesus, they're involved in an oxymoron. Jesus gives the reason for most religiously inspired persecution. The unbeliever, the make-believer, the false worshiper does not believe in the God of the Bible. And the persecutor has a false view of the God of the Bible and Jesus. And Jesus goes so far as to say, they don't know God and they don't know me. And the statement is amazing. The statement is difficult to accept and impossible to believe. Unless we consider the source. It's Jesus himself who is making this statement. How dare you? How, how dare you imply that you know things that you don't really know? How can you say a person doesn't know God if they say they in fact do know God? But here's part of the point that Jesus makes. A person who genuinely, legitimately, personally and relationally knows the Father isn't going to persecute followers of the Son. Not everyone who says that they know the Father and know the Son do. They may go to church. They may serve in church. They may even go to this church. They may even serve in this church. But secretly, they go home and they ridicule mock their husband, their wife, their children. They ridicule and mock the Bible. They ridicule and mock its authority and inerrancy and clarity. They think that they know the Lord, but it's not necessarily true. Not personally, not intimately. When the true believer makes a stand for the Lord, when the true believer embraces the truth of the righteousness of God, when they 
embrace the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he died on the cross and that he rose from the dead. When the true believer dares to believe and then teach that the Bible is true, they're considered extremists and religious fanatics and sometimes even just plain nuts. Particularly if you believe that heaven is real and that hell is a place that must be avoided at all costs. The persecutor thinks he or she knows the Lord, but they don't really. They don't really have a personal relationship and friendship with the Lord. The false religion is is deceived and they're deceived at the most basic level. They're deceived concerning the nature and the character of God and of Jesus. The false religionist rejects Jesus, rejects the claims of Jesus, rejects the promises of Jesus. And the moment that you do that, guess what? You're rejecting the Father who sent Him. And so why do the people do that? I think it's because they want a God who is in fact the product of their own imagination. They want a God who gives them the the, the permission to continue to sin, to continue to pursue their own pleasure, who reject the demands of the supreme being because they believe that the demands of the supreme being have been misrepresented in a book and misrepresented by the church. But have they really? Has the church misrepresented Jesus' claims when he says... Believe in me. Follow me. Take up your cross. Reject your sin. Accept the provision that God has given to you in the person of Jesus Christ, the Savior. The moment that a person makes the statement, I am the way and the truth and the life, they are branded narrow, exclusive, intolerant, prejudiced, prejudiced against other religions, prejudiced against other beliefs, prejudiced against other ways to God. But here's what Jesus says. You know the Father or you don't. You know the Son or you don't. And he gives us the plan. Preparing for persecution. Look at verse 4. It says, but these things I've told you that when the time comes, and that's the one you want to underline, when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I didn't say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Jesus gives his disciples a plan on how to prepare for the persecution. Number one, be aware that it's coming. Plan for it. Remember the source of the information wasn't Satan and it wasn't your pastor. It was Jesus himself. Jesus himself says, please prepare for certain things. And then he goes on and he says, and these things I didn't say to you at the beginning because I was with you. The presence of Jesus meant the protection of Jesus and the guidance of Jesus and the care of Jesus. But his physical presence is getting ready to go. Are you a parent? Do you remember when your child was young? Did you tell your child everything he or she ne- that they needed to know? No. You give them age-appropriate instruction. You love them. You care for them. You guide them. You protect them. 
But there comes an awful, awful day in every parent's life when they realize that they're not going to be able to protect their child any longer. That the child is going to go out into that world. And that there are people out there who are wicked. There are predators out there who will hurt people and take advantage of people. And so you have to tell them the truth. I've devoted my life to leading and guiding and protecting. But now I need to tell you something. There are people out there who will hurt you and take advantage of you. And so now there's a new plan and now there's a new stage and now there's a new circumstance that you need to be prepared for. The presence of Jesus, protection, guidance, care. But again, remember, Jesus isn't going to leave us alone. He's going to send the Holy Spirit to provide protection and guidance and care. And you'll remember years later, Peter remembers the words of Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. The apostle says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ... Keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. He's saying, remember, Jesus warned us about this. He said it would happen in direct proportion of your willingness to witness. You're going to be confronted. You believe the Bible is true. Keep your mouth shut. You believe that Jesus is Lord. Keep your mouth shut. You believe the promises of God are true? Keep your mouth shut and you'll be fine. But the moment you open up your mouth, the moment you say, no, it's true. The Father sent the Son. The Son died on the cross for your sins. He loves you and He's willing to forgive you. He'll redeem you and reconcile you back to God. You can... Avoid hell and you can go to heaven. It's true. God loves you and Jesus loves you and he paid the ultimate price in order to express that. The presence of persecution was never meant to shatter your faith, but to deepen and strengthen your resolve that the promises of God are true. If you forget everything else that I've said in this message, I want you to remember that one sentence. The presence of persecution was never meant to shatter your faith, but to deepen and strengthen your resolve that the Lord's promises are true. They're true in every way. They're true in every way. Persecution is not the fine print. Persecution is the bold print. He's laid out the cost of discipleship. If anyone wishes to come after me, deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, that is the person who will find it. And so Jesus says in verse 5, but now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you is asking me, 
Where are you going? Do you understand what's happening? The disciples are stunned. And they're silenced. Jesus has repeatedly told them, I'm going away. I'm going away. I'm going away. But the disciples are concerned about their own circumstances. They're concerned about their, their own predicament. Some, deci- some people might read this gospel and say, hey, well, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't Peter ask earlier in John 13, 36, where are you going? Didn't Thomas say, hey, where are you going? In John chapter 14, verse 5. But the concern wasn't out of concern for Jesus, but out of concern for themselves. It's one thing for a person to say, where are you going because you're leaving me? Versus where are you going because I'm concerned about you? In verse 6 it says, because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. We understand. We're human. We have fallen hearts and fallen tendencies. We miss so much because we're preoccupied with our circumstances. We're preoccupied with our own suffering, our own pain, our own hardship. It's as if the disciples can't imagine a life without Jesus. They can't conceive how they're going to be able to go on without Jesus. And they're stunned and they're silent. And it, it presents a, a perfect moment for each and every one of us to ask this question. What are you thinking about right at this very moment? Are you thinking about how you're going to pay the rent? How you're going to make the mortgage this month? Are you wondering where the money is going to come from to pay the car payment or the groceries? Are you wondering how you're going to survive in the strained relationship that you find yourself in your own home? Are you concerned about the collapse of our culture? Or are you thinking about Jesus? Are you contemplating the fact that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God Almighty and that Jesus at this very moment is the source of strength and hope and the Holy Spirit has been given to us to deal with doubt and discouragement and danger and the disciples, the disciples have no idea. They have no idea that Jesus is going to heaven. He is going to sit at the right hand of the Father. He is going to ever live to intercede on their behalf, Jesus is going to a cross and it's not for any good reason, but for the specific reason to pay the penalty of sin. It's so that you could experience what you need to experience, forgiveness and grace and mercy and hope and love and reunion and eternal life with God the Father. All of this is going to happen in order to help them. There's no reason for sorrow. There's no reason for despair. There's no reason for depression. There's no reason for fear. Because the advantages of Jesus far outweighs the disadvantages of whatever pain or problem or circumstance that you're facing. Is it wrong? Is it wrong for a believer to question his or her belief or to experience pain and sorrow 
it's not wrong to be in pain. And it's not wrong to have questions. But why would you always go to the person who hates you for the answer? For the person who denies the Bible and denies the promises of God. Imagine you were looking for a job and you needed a a, a reference. And you go, hey, you know what? I'm going to ask this person who hates my guts for a reference for this job. You don't do that, do you? Because you actually have some hope of getting the job. So why would you go to the unbeliever? And why would you go to the make-believer? And why would you go to the cynic and the skeptic for answers? I have spent my whole life answering Bible questions. Is the Bible true? Can it be trusted? Are the claims of Jesus true? Are the promises of Jesus true? Can this book be trusted? And you know what? Out of all the thousands and thousands and thousands of questions I myself have asked about Christianity, there's still a handful of questions that I have no idea what the answer might be. But I'm more convinced than I've ever been that Jesus Christ is Lord. Henry Ward Beecher said, The difference between perseverance and obstinacy is that one often comes from a strong will and the other comes from a strong won't. I like that. And the reason why I like it is because I can't bring myself to deny all that the Bible has said about Jesus. You see, there is one thing, one thing that keeps me from renouncing Christianity and leaving this pulpit and doing whatever it is that you do when you renounce Christianity and leave the pulpit. I can't explain away the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It really happened. He really is who he says he is. He really is the Lord. Has persecution, whether it's mild or severe, caused you to contemplate the ranks of former believer? Are you ready to divorce your husband or your wife, abandon Christianity, abandon the church? Are you ready to return to your former religion, a religion where you didn't have to worry about being called a freak or a fanatic or extremist or insane? Do you want the rejection and the criticism and the mocking and the attacking to cease? And keep your mouth shut. Make sure your testimony is not seen and certainly not heard. In the early church, Christians made the decision that they would rather die than deny Jesus. They wouldn't allow persecution or hardship or economic ruin or poverty or torture or isolation or imprisonment or threat or death to cause them to shut their mouth or mute their ministry. 
The secular historian Tacitus wrote that the city of Rome was destroyed by fire and rumors were circulated that Nero himself had caused the fire. And he wrote, and I quote, to stifle the report, Nero provided others to bear the accusation in the shape of people who were commonly called Christians in detestation of their abominable character. These Nero visited with every refinement of punishment. First, they were arrested who confessed that they were Christians. And then on receiving information, an immense number were convicted, not so much on the charge of arson, but on the charge of ill will toward mankind in general. You know why he said that? Tacitus said that because Christians had a reputation of saying stuff like, this world has nothing for me. This world has nothing for me. And it's all going to burn. What matters here is temporary, but what matters in heaven is eternal. That's why he wrote that. And then he wrote, their deaths were turned into a form of amusement. They were wrapped in the skin of wild beasts to be torn to pieces by wild dogs. They were fastened to crosses. They were set on fire. And when daylight came to an end, they were burned for an illumination at night. Nero threw open his own gardens for the spectacle. And he made it an an occasion of a circus exhibition. The circus was right near next to Nero's palace and his gardens. He had this vast sanctuary of gardens. You know what it is now? It's the seat of the papal state of Rome. What was once Nero's gardens became the center of Christianity. Tacitus wrote, sympathy was eventually felt for the sufferers. People felt that they were being destroyed, not for the benefit of the public, but to serve the cruel purpose of one man. Think about that for just a moment. Even the historian says, all of a sudden it began to dawn on us that hundreds and then thousands of people are being wiped out for no good reason. Again, among those who died during Nero's persecutions, you're going to know them. Because they're names that are familiar to you in, in the New Testament. Erastus, the chamberlain of Corinth, who's mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20. Aristarchus, the Macedonian, Colossians 4.10. Trophimus, an Ephesian. Barsabbas, Ananias, who it was in Damascus, who when Paul's eyes, are, are the veil is lifted, is baptized. In the last year of Nero's reign, Peter is crucified and Paul is beheaded. Jerome would later write, Persecutions have made the church of Christ grow. Seneca, who was the advisor to Nero, wrote, In the midst of the flame and the rack, I've seen men not only groan, that is a little, not only not complain, that is a little, not only not answer back, that too is little, but I saw him smile. And smile with a good heart. Do you understand what... What the unbeliever is writing, the unbeliever is writing that the Christian bears the torture, bears the persecution, bears the pain, bears the sorrow, and then smiles. Not because they're mocking or making fun of the unbeliever. They're smiling because they know that the Bible is true. That Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is saying, Prepare for persecution. Pray for guidance. And then learn. Learn from those who have suffered persecution. Learn from them. 
Do yourself a favor. Go out and buy yourself a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs or Martyr's Mirror. Memorize the Word of God. Memorize hymns and songs. Silently practice singing. Practice thankfulness always. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully persecute you. Or keep your mouth shut. The following letter was written by a young pastor in Zimbabwe whose body was found and the letter was found near him. He writes, I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of his. I won't look back. Let up. Slow down. Back away or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence or prosperity or position or promotion or plaudits or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded or rewarded. I live by faith. I lean on his presence. I walk by patience, am uplifted by prayer and labor with power. My face is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions few. My guide reliable. My mission clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the enemy, pander in the pool of popularity, meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up. I won't shut up. I won't let up until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. And I must keep going until he comes. Give until I drop. Preach until all know and work until he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he'll have no problem recognizing me. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that we would come to grips that persecution is not the fine print but the bold print. It isn't what comes last in order to keep people from following you. It's what comes first. And for the person who's ready to walk away Run away. Fall away. Lord, I pray that it would be their desire to be filled with the Holy Spirit and the testimony of love 
that they would refuse to be intimidated into silence. But Lord, that they would desire to speak with all of their heart the truth about Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.